Well, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14 this morning, uh, as you notice, we have a long passage of Scripture, and that means I can't preach a long time on each verse because I have to keep moving. So uh, uh, hopefully uh, I'll keep moving and uh, we'll get done here in a, in a reasonable time. Some, sometimes these kinds of uh, texts where we're talking about things that we don't necessarily practice like they were practiced in the early church, like speaking in tongues and uh, prophesying. Um, sometimes you might just kind of be tempted to kind of check out, you know, well, these verses were you know, applied more to them and not as much to us. But I want to challenge you to, to look with me. We want to understand what it meant to them. But let's see what application there is. And there always is application because the Word of God is profitable for doctrine and correction and instruction and righteousness, reproof, uh, no matter if we're talking about something that happened back in Leviticus or in the prophets or in the Gospels or in Revelation. All Scripture is useful. So let's look together and see what the Lord has for us in 1 Corinthians 14, 1 through 25. We spent uh, the last three weeks before, uh, before Easter um, looking at 1 Corinthians 13, and if love was kind of the theme, obviously, of chapter 13, then maybe the overarching theme of chapter 14 is the building up of the church. And I think you'll see why as we, as we go through the message today. By the way, building up the church is the reason that spiritual gifts are given to the church. They're not given to us as a badge of honor to wear. I have this spiritual gift. I have this spiritual gift. Look at me. Um, no, they're given for a purpose, and that is to build up the church. In verses 1 through 5 here of uh, chapter 14, Paul continues his theme that love is paramount. In fact, you, you noticed that probably right away in verse 1, didn't you? The first words of the chapter, pursue love. So even as we move into a very detailed section on tongues and prophecy, he doesn't want us to forget. Here's the big idea. None of these things matter. Remember what he said in chapter 13? They're useless. They're nothing unless they're done in love. And so we want to, we want to remember that. Uh, but he, then he goes on to say that Christians should eagerly desire the spiritual gifts. And so this is an important correction to the Corinthians because the Corinthians uh, regarded tongue speaking as the greatest of gifts. And that's why Paul constantly is trying to put it in its proper place. Um, the tongue speakers who thought of this gift out of proportion with its true significance need to be reminded, and Paul's going to remind them here, that the gift is less, it's inferior to prophecy, not in a, uh, in a gift sort of way. All the gifts are good and all of them are valuable. But as far as what they're able to do in edifying the church, one is definitely greater than the other. So if you're taking notes, four points this morning as we move through the text. What really matters? The first question I want to answer. What really matters? Verses 1 through 5. Paul exhorts the Corinthians, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Literally, Paul starts off here by saying, pursue love without stopping. It's an ongoing command. Don't stop. Don't just pursue love and be done with it. Pursue it continually. Don't stop pursuing that. He also exhorts them to desire spiritual gifts. But the first gift on Paul's list here is not tongues, but prophecy. And I want to take just a minute to review again what we mean when we say tongues and what we say prophecy. There's a lot of 
diverse opinion about that in the church, as we, as we know. Uh, the Pentecostals and the Charismatic uh, have taken this and still run with it, full stream today. Uh, they're called continuationists. They believe that all of the gifts are still in operation. We teach what's called cessationism, that some of those miraculous uh, supernatural gifts, or sometimes we call them uh, sensational gifts or spectacular gifts, some of them passed away with the, with the apostles and the prophets when they passed off the scene um, and as the, the uh, Bible came into completion. But when we talk about prophecy, we're talking about spontaneous revelation. This is a word from God to an individual in the moment, spontaneous. And what those prophets would do, those who had the gift of prophecy, they would receive this gift, receive this revelation from the Lord. Uh, it could be during a church service, just like this. And someone received a revelation from God, and so they gave it to the church right then at that moment. And everybody is supposed to stop and listen to that revelation from God, as we'll see as we go through chapter 14. Now, sometimes in our modern day, uh, some people like to equate this prophecy with what today we might call preaching or teaching. And the only, the only thing I would want to say about that is I prefer using the terms preaching and teaching rather than prophesying because what is similar about the two things is that we're, we're communicating revelation from God, right? So when we preach or when you're in a Bible study or in an ABF class and someone's teaching, they're teaching or preaching the revelation from God, just like the prophets would be giving the revelation from God. So in that sense, as we preach and as we teach, we're continuing to prophesy in that sense of the word. But as far as receiving new revelation, spontaneous revelation from the Lord, we would say that that has passed away with the apostles and the prophets. And we now have the completed revelation of God, all that we need, Peter tells us, for life and godliness. So that's what we, when we mean when we talk about prophecy. When we talk about tongues, some people, as we said uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, charismatics in particular, would say that tongues um, are a kind of, a, we, we, we describe it as an ecstatic utterance. In other words, it's something that, that comes out of us that we don't really have any control over. It just kind of comes out, the Spirit does it through us, and nobody understands what it is. It's like, uh, it sounds almost like gibberish, uh, frankly. And, uh, and the way that it's practiced today in the charismatic movement um, is not at all, as we'll see, what 1 Corinthians 14 says it should be practiced. And we'll get into that even a little bit today. We teach that tongues, according to Acts chapter 2, and I think even in this passage, uh, that speaking in tongues was speaking in a foreign language, a known language, a human language, uh, that you didn't know, that you had not learned. So if I all of a sudden stopped speaking in English today and started speaking in Turkish, I don't know that there's anybody here that would understand that, including me. So that would be a supernatural gift of tongues that we would say have also passed away off the scene with the apostles and the prophets. Uh, one of the reasons we say it's languages is because in Acts chapter 2, when, this was, when the Spirit was first poured out on the day of Pentecost, 
uh, which is coming up here in a few weeks. Um, the, 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 the 120 that were in that upper room were filled and they spoke in different tongues. And then the people that gathered outside that house, if you go to Acts chapter 2, were saying that they could hear the people speak in their languages. Remember that this was a feast. The day of Pentecost was one of the great feasts. And so Jews would come from all over the world to Jerusalem for these special feast days. So there were Jewish people there from all these other countries and who had learned all these other languages. And they heard people speaking in all these different languages. And these were just, you know, fishermen from Galilee, right? And other people that had never learned these languages. It was a miracle. And even in, in our passage today, in chapter 14, I think it talks about that all the languages or all the tongues um, have meaning. Uh, in other words, they're able to be understood. They're a foreign language. So anyway, just a brief definition there. Uh, so uh, as we keep going here, you'll know what I'm talking about. All right, so um, what gift should the Corinthians desire? Paul says prophecy. What were they desiring? Tongues. Because uh, it was the cool gift. Uh, now, the reason why tongue speaking is inferior to prophecy uh, in this context is because, according to Paul, tongue speaking, foreign language speaking, is unintelligible to the congregation. Uh, verse 2, Paul says to the Corinthians, For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. So the one who speaks in a tongue... Does, is not speaking to others, is speaking to God. No one else in the congregation can understand him. The tongue speaker is uttering mysteries. They're, these are things that people could not know unless God revealed them to them. Now notice as he goes on in verses 3 and 4, the superiority of prophecy. He says, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. So as long as the tongue, this foreign language that's being spoken supernaturally, as long as it was not being translated or interpreted for the congregation, the tongue speaker is speaking only to himself. The speaker is the only one who's edified because they're the only one who knows what they're saying. Nobody else knows what they're saying. So, but Paul here says that the one who prophesies in regular, normal language edifies the entire church because everybody can understand what they're saying. So if we were to look at verses 2 through 4 here, um, if you were to chart that, you might say uh, with regard to tongues, they're speaking only to God, not fellow humans. It's intelligible only to God not fellow humans, and it builds up only the speaker. But with regard to prophecy, it's speaking to the fellow humans in the church. It's intelligible to the fellow humans in the church, and it builds up the whole church. So there's a contrast that Paul's making here. In verse 5, he gives his own perspective on speaking in tongues. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. 
So Paul doesn't, you may think, boy, Paul's really knocking the gift of tongues. His intent is not to put tongues down. It is a gift of the Spirit. It is valuable. But with regards to edifying the church, it takes a back seat to prophecy. That's what he's trying to say here. The reason for this is because people don't understand what people are saying when they're speaking in tongues. But if the tongue is interpreted or translated, now it's more like prophecy, right? Now uh, they can understand what's being said. But, and why is that? Because Paul's main burden here is that Corinthians use spiritual gifts in a way that builds up the church. Now just look across this whole passage for just a second. I want you to see this theme. Look in verse 3. That the spiritual gifts are for their upbuilding encouragement and consolation look at verse four builds up himself that's tongues as opposed to builds up the church that's prophecy look at verse five so that the church may be built up verse six paul says how will it benefit you and the you there is plural it's you all Uh, verse 12 he says strive to excel in building up the church. Verse 17, he says the other person is not being built up. This is, that's in regard to tongues. And then verse 19, the purpose is in order to instruct others. So you can see there's a common theme all through this section. Paul wants spiritual gifts to be used to build the church. And if it's not building the church, then it's not useful in the assembly, in the gathering of people. So that's what he's saying. That's what, that's what matters the most. Now, secondly, verses 6 through 12, uh, we want to answer the question, what are you saying? So Paul's going to drill down into this idea of intelligibility. Uh, verses 6 through 12, he says, when tongues are spoken in worship, they need to be understood. So if you're going to speak in tongues, Paul says, you better make sure that there's a translator or that the Lord gives you the ability to translate. The problem with the tongues that was currently practiced by the Corinthians is that they were not intelligible and they weren't being interpreted. So when tongues were spoken and not interpreted, this caused a lot of confusion in the church, disruption in the church. Whether the speaker knows the language of the tongue or not, the issue is causing so much consternation, so much, uh, so much frustration because they don't understand what he's saying. And it, there's mass confusion as a result. Can you just imagine for a minute? I mean, even if everybody in this room right now were to just speak out loud in English and we all spoke at the same time, there would be mass confusion because nobody would, would be able to hear what anybody else is saying. But can you imagine a church full of people who are all trying to speak in foreign languages? Maybe the spiritual gift that they had been given of tongues, but they're all trying to do it at the same time. Can you imagine the chaos and no one's interpreting? It's chaotic. And Paul's, Paul wants to correct this. He wants to address this. Look at the nature of the problem in verse 6. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you? Unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching. Notice there, prophecy and teaching are distinguished from one another. So if Paul comes to Corinth and speaks in tongues, 
What good will it be? None, he says. But if Paul comes and brings some revelation, some word of knowledge, some prophecy, or some word of instruction to the church, then they can be edified. Why? All of those things are intelligible. Tongues are not, unless they are interpreted, translated. Paul uses several illustrations here to make his point. Verse 7 and verse 8. If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is being played? Now, if my daughter Ashley was up here, who obviously plays the flute, if I took her flute, which is... Well, it's not up here right now. Good thing for you. Um, If I took her flute and tried to play it, what would sound would be what Paul's describing here, uh, an indistinct sound. You wouldn't have any idea what I was trying to do with the flute because I don't know how to play the flute. But if Ashley plays the flute, you'll hear distinct notes, and you can understand she's playing a melody or how, uh, you know, it has purpose, it has usefulness. Uh, Again, he says, if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? You know, you know they're playing these, these bugle, and it gets the, gets the guys ready to march, ready to fight. Well, if the, blue, if the bugler gets up there and starts, you know, you know, if he starts, if he starts doing some, you know, some non-military, non-marching, non-fighting type tune, who's going to get ready for battle? There's going to be chaos on the battlefield. If there's no discernible tune, these instruments are nothing just useless noise makers. The same thing holds true for the Corinthians. He says, so with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. just doesn't matter. The tongue speakers in Corinth are like those flutes and harps and bugles, trumpets making loud sounds. They're surely making loud sounds, but they're not playing recognizable tunes. No one can understand them. So again, unless a tongue is interpreted or translated, no one knows what the speaker is saying. Chaos is the result. Verse 10, Paul mentions different languages. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. So what Paul's point here is, is that there are many different languages, but they all have meaning to those who speak them. In other words, these are real languages that we're talking about. And the reason why unintelligibility is such a problem in the church, look at verse 11. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. That word foreigner is literally the word barbarian in the Greek. And it comes from, uh, barbarian comes from barbar, which is the sound that they said those people sound like. Bar, 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 bar. Because they speak a foreign language. They don't, they don't share the same language. So when they speak, they don't understand it. And, um, and, and that's going to come up again later uh, when Paul quotes um, Isaiah. C- Corinth, of course, was an important seaport. We've talked about that before. At where it was located. So it would be home to many immigrants, many transient laborers, uh, many traders who might not have spoken Greek as their main language. Although, if you were to engage in commerce of that day, almost everyone had to know enough of it 
to do their business. Kind of like English is kind of the language of commerce in the world. No matter where you are, everybody has to know a little bit to be able to do business together, unless they have a translator. And this is the case with the Corinthian tongue speakers as well. Um, Verse 12, Paul zeroes in on the issue again. So with yourselves... Since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. I love those words. First of all, excel in building up the church. Don't give it a half effort. Excel in building up the church. With whatever spiritual gifts the Lord has gifted you with, excel at them use them to their utmost and and he and he adds on top of that not only excel but strive to excel really labor really work hard at excelling in building up the church that's something that we all can take we're you know a lot of us as americans we're we're pretty quick to be cynical we're pretty quick to complain We're pretty quick to put our negative reviews online and all that kind of stuff. Um, We want to do just the, uh, we want to be just the opposite. We want to strive. We want to work hard. We want it to become our natural inclination to excel at building up the people around us, not tearing them down. That's a big, big deal. It was in Corinth and it is still today. Uh, Thirdly, verses 13 to 19. Not only what are you saying, but what do you mean? So Paul, what does it mean to desire the greater gifts to build each other up? Paul's explaining this here in verses 13 to 19. So because there's an untranslated tongue that's unintelligible, and so it's not able to edify the church, then people who pray in tongues should also pray that they can interpret the tongue. Verse 13, he says, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. In other words, don't let it be sufficient that you can speak in tongues. Get your, get your gold star. You know, look at me. I've got this amazing gift. No, no, no. Pray that the Lord also gives you uh, the ability to interpret it so it can build people. Verses 14 to 15, he describes his own practice regarding speaking in tongues. He says, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Up to this point, Paul's been speaking of the Corinthian situation, but now he speaks of his own personal practice. When Paul prays in a, in a tongue, in a foreign language that he doesn't naturally know, his spirit is praying that, but his mind remains unfruitful. The importance of this, we shouldn't overlook this, because Paul has given a prominent role to the mind of a Christian, the intellectual life of a Christian. And, and this is something that, when we look out at the Pentecostal community today and the charismatic movement, which is all over the place, by the way, it's growing in Africa, South America, especially in Asia. It's growing all the time. People enjoy the sensational, the experiential. But friends, when you look at those movements and you see that 
these people are arguing speaking in tongues is a good thing because you bypass the mind and you speak directly to God apart from understanding anything. That's something that they say is good. Paul says that is not good. He wants to pray and sing with his spirit and his mind on the same page. Prayer and worship are to be intellectual activities. They're not just to engage our hearts and our spirit. They're to engage our minds as well. Our thinking needs to be engaged, needs to be focused. Where the mind goes, often the heart will follow. Look at verses 16 to 19. He, he now turns from his own practice to the Corinthians' way of practicing. He says, if you, verse 16, if you give thanks with your spirit... Only, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you're saying? Makes sense, right? If they're speaking, giving thanks to God in a tongue, there's no interpretation, then an outsider who comes in doesn't have a clue what you're saying. Um, and the key to understanding the, the verse here is the meaning of the word where it says, when he does not know, and literally, in the Greek, that's the word idiotai, okay? It's what we get idiot from, someone who doesn't have a clue what's going on. And some people, um, how can these people give agreement? How can they say amen, right? To say amen means to give agreement. I agree with that. So be it. How can they say amen when they don't understand what is said? So regardless of the nuances of this, of this word, Paul is saying people who don't understand the tongue because it's unintelligible might say amen, but they don't know what's going on. And this is a problem. Such people don't know what's going on. They're just mimicking what everybody else is saying. Paul says in verse 17, for you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. So if you give thanks for what God has done, amen. But if you don't understand the tongue, you're not being edified. They're saying amen to something they don't understand. He goes on in verses 18 and 19 to say, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But in church, nevertheless in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Do you see the priority that Paul has on building up the body? The gift of tongues has an important role to play. It had an important role to play in the early church. He's not demeaning it, but he's saying in the gathering, we want to speak in a way that's clear, in a way that's intelligible, that people can understand it so that they can be edified and built up. Paul's thankful that he speaks in tongues. Do you notice that? He's not down on it. He's thankful. And he's, and he's talking here, of course, about his private worship primarily. But in his public ministry, five words that are understood are better than 10,000 words in a tongue that is not translated. So, point number four. What is your response? What is your response to all this? Verses 20 to 25. And in this last half of chapter 14, which uh, Pastor Trey will, will take us to next week, Paul addresses the effects of 
tongue speaking that's not translated on unbelievers who happen to visit the Corinthian congregation during worship as well as believers. Believers remain unedified because they can't understand what's being said, but non-Christians who come into a service are going to be completely put off by the confusion and the chaos by these uninterpreted tongues and by all these people trying to speak at the same time. So what, what does he say? He, he's going to say that they think they're crazy. So this, this concern explains his uh, exhortation in verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. He softens this rebuke a little bit by saying, brothers, it's an affectionate term for Paul, but the force of this command should not be missed. Stop thinking like children is literally what he's saying. We could paraphrase him and say, grow up. Quit acting like babies. Now, he wants them to remain naive or childish towards evil, right? He said that before. But he wants them to grow up or be mature when it comes to their mind, what they're thinking about, especially in worship, in gathered worship, so they can correct their behavior, which is disruptive in the church and which is becoming an obstacle to unbelievers, In verse 21, Paul uses an Old Testament passage to illustrate this point. He quotes from Isaiah 28, verse 11. Look look what he says in verse 21 here. In the law it is written, and by law, a lot of times in the New Testament when we see the word law, we think of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. Here, Paul is using it uh, as referring to the whole Old Testament because the verse is from Isaiah. So in the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, that's that barbarian word again, will I speak to this people. And even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So what was happening here is uh, the people, the children of Israel in Isaiah, they were not listening to God's prophet, to Isaiah. They were not listening to him. And so God was saying, what's going to happen to you is I'm going to send barbarian invaders In this case, we know historically it was the Assyrians who came under King Nebuchadnezzar who came and conquered the northern northern tribes of Israel in 722 B.C. And these barbarians who came in and conquered the land of Israel didn't speak Hebrew. And so as these barbarians came in and invaded, they spoke a language that the children of Israel could not understand And God is using this as part of their judgment. That's what he says here. By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, barbarians, I will speak to this people and even then they won't listen to me. So the Assyrians are speaking Assyrian and the Israelites aren't understanding that. Now, because the prophets of Israel prophesied in Hebrew, like Isaiah, Isaiah speaks in Hebrew, the people could understand him And they should have responded to his prophesying, his revelations from God. But they didn't. And so as a result, God sent them people of strange tongues, unintelligible languages, as a part of their judgment for rejecting 
the clear message that Isaiah had already spoken to them. Now, that's the basis for what Paul goes on to say in verse 22. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. Now, this might seem a little contradictory because in verse 21, uh, Paul said that the prophecy was intelligible, and so it was of great benefit to those who believed the prophet Isaiah. But on the other hand, the unintelligent language from the barbarians came as a result of the people rejecting God's promises. And so like the Israelites, when the Corinthians prophesied, when they spoke in a language uh, that people understood so that they would edify and build up the church as a whole, this was a great benefit to those who believed the gospel. But when a person spoke in tongues a language that was not known, and it wasn't translated, and no one could understand it, that confusion that results is a part of God's judgment. No one can listen to God because no one understands what's being said. And so the Corinthian church is running the risk here of becoming like Israel and becoming captive to a people who cannot be understood. They're on their path that way. Look at verse 23. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? And and all you got to do is pop on YouTube, by the way, and type in, you know, speaking in tongues in a service. You'll find all kinds of examples of what looks like you would say, are they not out of their minds? When the Corinthian church assembles for worship and people are speaking in tongues without interpretation and people are present who don't understand what's being spoken and and witness this confusion, they're going to say, you people are crazy. And it's very likely they'll come to the conclusion that this assembly, this church assembly, is no different from all of the other pagan mystery religions in Corinth whose, whose, whose services were characterized by all kinds of wild behavior and crazy, unintelligible speech. But prophecy has a very different effect. It's described by the Apostle Paul in verses 24 and 25. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters... He's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. The superiority of prophecy compared to tongues is self-evident here, isn't it? The effect that it has on unbelievers compared to unintelligible tongues is striking. If the Corinthians focus on prophecy, on proclaiming the the revelation of God that he is giving them, then the law and the gospel will be clearly proclaimed. So when an unbeliever comes in, they will become aware of their sins. They They will learn that they are under God's judgment, that they cannot keep their sins hidden from God anymore. And what will the sinner's response be, according to Paul? 
instead of seeing the confusion of untranslated tongues going on in the church and concluding that you people are crazy, he will hear the gospel in an intelligible way, know that he is a sinner in need of a Savior, and conclude God is really among you. Not like the other pagan religions. God is really here among you. That's why prophesying and interpreted tongues are superior to uninterpreted tongues, which is a sign of God's judgment. Just stay with me? All right, good. That will be continued in next week's sermon. And uh, Pastor Trey will bring some more application home to us then. I'll ask the praise team to come back for our final song. As they're coming, just a final thought or two here. A problem in Corinth was that people were misusing their spiritual gifts, including tongues. And the result was chaos, division during worship, and certain individuals that were really proud that they had been given certain gifts of the Spirit. The application for churches today is that we too make sure that we ask the Lord for those greater gifts for the common good, like we talked about at the end of 1 Corinthians 13, that we have teaching and proclaiming of God's revelation faithfully in this place, while at the same time trying to do everything in the light of the more excellent way, the way of love. And if we truly love our brothers and sisters, then as we look to, to the love of God in Christ Jesus, which is where we understand such love to begin with, and we consider what Jesus did for us on the cross in dying for our sins, it will humble us, it will make us a servant as we use our spiritual gifts to try to build up our brothers and sisters. I love that exhortation he makes in verse 12. Strive to excel in building up the church. It's the title of my message today, Strive to Excel. I think that applies to our churches today, don't you? And we do this by grounding everything we do in the confession that Jesus is Lord. We proclaim his finished work of, on, on the cross on behalf of sinners. And we, to everyone who will listen, we proclaim it. We, we want those higher gifts, not because they're better than another gift, but because they edify more. We want those gifts in our church. We want to pray for those and desire those. And we're pursuing the more excellent way of love. Because love abides long after the gift of tongues is gone, we learned in 1 Corinthians 13, didn't we? So we focus on the clear proclamation of the Word of God. In that sense, the prophecy, the proclaiming of the revelation that He has given to us that is complete today. And we proclaim Jesus as Lord and Savior from Genesis through Revelation. And in doing so, the message of the Gospel is understandable to anyone who comes in this place or to any Bible study that they may gather at. They will hear in their own language in an understandable way the revelation of God. Hopefully, that will make an impact on those people. Not that y'all are crazy, but that God is among you all. 
and they will fall down on their face and join us in worshiping and following Jesus. Amen?